Well, I am very excited to be with you. It's good to see many of you again, and there might be some of you that I've not met before, and even if I haven't met you before, so many of you have grown up a lot since I saw you last, except for those of you who saw the least But I always enjoy being here and being encouraged on this weekend. Thank you for this is for hosting this and being so hospitable all the time, uh, and thank you for the invitation to be here. So most of what I'm going to teach uh, tonight and tomorrow is going to be from the book of 1 Peter, if you want to turn to the Bible to 1 Peter. But I wanted to tell you why I chose that book based on the theme song this year. Uh, so I want to show you just a couple of things uh, that might help you understand the connection between the song and the book of 1 Peter. So the song, which I didn't know before, uh, the first time I sang it was today, the first time I saw the words was when the Woodset sent me the words. Um, it's a beautiful song. Uh, but in the first verse, who can you compare to God and who, uh, who made us with his hand? Not one who treads upon the sod can in his presence stand. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and listen to verse uh, 5 and 6. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Peter is going to say toward the end of his book that we ought to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Same thing that Isaiah was saying in chapter 40. Same thing this song is saying. Uh, also, look there at verse 6 again. You see where it says that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now listen to the third verse of the song. God has promised to the, all those who love him great reward. To those who in his goodness grow, upon them love the poor. And though we stumble and we fall, the Lord will give us wings. And when we hear that final call, we'll bow before the king. So the idea that God one day is going to, as the verse promises, lift us up at the proper time. And there'll be more that we'll say about that in chapter 5 uh, when we get to the end of the, the studies. Uh, but that leaves verse 2 of the song. Listen to verse 2. Nations are as dust to you, their rulers but as clay. He blesses those who right have, uh, who right have trod and all his will obey. The flowers fade, as does the grass, his people likewise so. But God's word does these things surpass, and onward it will grow. Go to chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. This is verse 23, uh, beginning. For you've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For... All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So the song that's based on Isaiah chapter 40 that I know Gary is going to talk about uh, later, there's also a lot that Peter has to say uh, that sort of sends us back to those images in Isaiah chapter 40. And so... Uh, I'll, I'll point some of that out as we study together. Um, let me 
suggest something to you about the way we're going to approach this, and it's, it's actually just a tip I want to give you for Bible study anyway. Um, over the years, as I've tried to learn how to study the Bible uh, to get the most out of Bible study, um, there's been a couple of things that have finally made sense to me. Uh, and this particular piece of advice I'm going to give you, I think, will help you. Any time in the Bible that somebody who wrote the book of the Bible or wrote a letter tells you why they wrote it, then you need to take that really seriously. If somebody comes out and says, I've written to you these words, like John says at the end of his gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believe you may have life in his name. Whenever a writer tells you why he wrote, take the phrase, take the idea of why they wrote, and then read the book from that perspective. And everywhere you read in the book, ask yourself the question, how does this section help me understand why he wrote the book? And all of a sudden, the Bible will like be a lot more interesting to you. Uh, instead of you trying to figure out when you read, I wonder why he wrote this. If he tells you, then read the book that way. Uh, it turns out a lot of writers do that, and a lot of times it gets ignored. Peter's one of those. Let me show you why Peter wrote his book. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, and let's read verse 12. Now, before I read this, um, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll read this, we'll talk about it, and then I'll give you guys another, uh, another thought about this. 1 Peter 5.12, Crusobinus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, you notice in that verse, Peter says, Here's why I wrote. Number one, he thinks he wrote a short book. Did you catch that? He says, I've written you briefly. It's not very long in his mind. It was a short letter, uh, even though it's going to take us you know, a few hours to get through it. Um, he wrote briefly, but look at the verse again. What does it say he was doing? First thing he says is he was exhorting you. What does it mean to exhort somebody? Exhortation or exhorting means saying something like, come on, you can do this. Like, get, get with it. Uh, you, you're you're able to do this. You ever heard teaching or preaching that doesn't just educate you, but it motivates you? And you kind of leave and think, you know, I want to do better. I want to keep going. That's exhortation. And that's why he wrote the letter. But look at the other thing he says. Exhorting and, what word does he use there? Testifying. Does everybody have that? Testifying. Now, normally people testify when something's on trial. Right? When there's a question. Um, well, what was on trial that Peter needed to testify about? Look at the rest of the verse. He was testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm. Now, if he was testifying that this was the true grace of God, that implies that in the world that he lived in, there was something else out there, which would be false graces. Ever since the grace of God began to be preached, there's always been false graces. Now, here's what I want to tell you about the book of 1 Peter and reading it from through this lens of this verse. Do uh, you ever have Bible studies or friends that you wish you could have Bible studies with, and your friends love God? Um, I know a lot of people like this. They love God, they go to church, but when you talk to them about the Bible, their favorite thing to talk about is grace. Like, that's what they love to talk about. And you know, even though you know them really well, that they sort of misuse or misunderstand grace. Grace is kind of like this, uh, you know, 
anti-venom snake bite kit that they have, and it's like, you know, I can go out there and sin all I want because I have the anti-venom, and then I can just give myself a shot of grace, and I'm good. Like, they, they sort of have this idea of grace, and it's like everything to them. Grace is everything to them. But their understanding of grace is not always exactly how you have understood Scripture to, to say it. So I want to tell you that i found the book of 1 Peter to be the best place to study with those people. If I get a Bible study with somebody up there in Minnesota that's like a grace person, and they love grace, and they love God, uh, but I know they don't know their Bibles very well, I can tell that. Uh, I'll, I'll get them into a Bible study, and I'll say, have you ever studied First Peter? And they'll say, well, no, I don't know much very, very much about that book. And I'll say, well, let me show you why he wrote his book. And I take him right here. And then I do something like this with them. I say, why does Peter say he wrote his book? Uh, well, he wrote his book to exhort that this is the true grace of God. And they get excited because they like grace. You know, oh, good, we're going to talk about grace. Um, but I also do the same thing with them that I did with you. I say, if, if he had to say there was true grace, what does that imply with that bit? There's false grace. And he had to testify that this was the true grace of God. Peter would have known because he walked with the Lord and he was an apostle. So whatever Peter says about grace is really the true grace of God. Um, I also... Show them one more thing. Look at verse 12 again. What's the last thing he says in the verse? Stand firm in it. Right? When do you normally tell somebody to stand firm in something? When it's easy? Or when it's difficult? What would you say? Hey, stand firm in that. That's usually talking about something like hard. So why would Peter say at the end of a book about grace that somebody has to stand firm? And I thought grace was like the easiest thing to stand in. It turns out that the grace of God that's truly understood is not the easiest thing to stand in. Uh, now, by the way, if you do this right, if you set this up right with these people, they'll already be like, wait, I don't really understand. And if they know anything about Peter, or you can say something like this, here's what I'll start with. When you read the book of 1 Peter, it doesn't tell me he's talking about grace at all until this verse. Like, you don't read the book and go, oh, grace is jumping out at every page. Peter's talking about things like suffering, and submission, and obedience, and holiness, and all these words and concepts that people nowadays never attach to grace. They almost put them in, like, opposition to grace. You know, grace is so we don't have to be obedient. Grace is so we don't have to live holy. Grace is, is something that will make you never have to suffer. You really don't have to submit much of anything. Uh, if you listen to some people talk about grace, they don't ever use the concepts of Peter. So what does Peter mean then? By the way, by the time we do all of that and get started in the study, they're really intrigued. Uh, and then as you begin to go through the book, it's just beautiful to watch them change the way they think about the true grace of God. Um, so I'm going to do a little bit of that with you here. Let's go back to chapter 1, and let's begin here at the beginning of Peter's uh, testifying and exhortation of the true grace of God. Now, if you want to keep track, um, I think there are five sections in the book of different ways to talk about grace. The first section is chapter 1, and Peter's going to tell us about the true grace of of the new birth, that we've been begotten again by God, we've been born again, and there is this grace in that new beginning. Uh, that's chapter 1. The first half of chapter 2 is the true grace of a new identity. 
that we are now a certain kind of people before God. And there's a grace in that, that we get to be this people. Uh, but there's a challenge to it, being those people. Um, the third one, so the true grace of the new birth, the true grace of the new identity. The second half of chapter 2, uh, into chapter 3, is the true grace of submission. That there are all these things in our life that we have to learn to submit to if we're going to honor God and honor people. And that is a grace that Peter would say we need to do. The fourth thing in chapter 3 and 4 is the true grace of suffering. <laughs> that he's going to talk a lot about what it means to suffer for the Lord uh, and to arm ourselves with the purpose of suffering. But that, according to Peter, is a grace or, or a part of grace. The fifth thing is the true grace of humility. The last chapter is going to describe the idea of us being humble in a couple of different ways. And that is also the true grace of God. Um, so that's just a quick overview. Uh, let's start in chapter 1 and talk about the true grace of the new birth. Um, after the introduction of the first couple verses, uh, and we're not going to have time to do everything in Peter, um, I really want to start with you in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now notice that verse 3 begins by talking about how great God is. Blessed be God, uh, he's wonderful, and he's incredibly merciful. But what has he done in that verse? Look at the verse again. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Some versions say he's begotten us again. Um, the idea of this verse is that God is now your father. It's not so much about you, like the focus isn't on you being born again as much as it is God doing the beginning. He caused us to be born again. Now we have a new like, a, a new father and like a new relationship with this father because of our being born again. Um, this is the theme of chapter one. Let me show you at the end of the chapter. Go to verse twenty-three. We read this in the First Peter one twenty-three says, "For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable." So the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter, Peter is saying, "You guys, you know what you have." You have a new father, you've been born again. This is good news. This is great. This is great news. But what does it mean? Like, what's the point he's trying to make? Now, we're going to look through the chapter, but let me start with this. A lot of people nowadays, if you say, hey, did you know that it's, it's the grace of God that we get to be born again? Everybody will agree. Yes, that's right, we get to be born again. But here's the focus. That means I get to start over, right? I get to like have a new life and begin a new life, and I get to start over. God's forgiven everything. That's true. But it's interesting that Peter never says that in the chapter. Peter's focus is not, hey guys, you've been born again, you need to start over. Peter's focus is, you've been born again, therefore there's all these other things that are true about your life, because God's your father. Let's look at what they are. Starting in verse 4. Here is the first benefit of being born again. 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. If you have a new father, according to verse 4, you have a new inheritance. It's not about your past, you see. It's about your future. It's not about having been forgiven of what you've done only. It's about what you stand to inherit from God. Think about for a minute uh, the ancient world and the people that would have lived in. And in those days, there were a lot of orphan people. There were a lot of people who didn't have fathers. Their fathers died in war or in battle or from sickness. And there were just more even than, than in our time. Uh, it was a big deal in that, in that time and in that culture to maybe be adopted into a family. But imagine for a minute that you come from poverty, nothing. You had no hope, no future, no inheritance to speak of. And then one day, somebody decided to adopt you, and they were rich. And they had a lot of land. And you were going to have this great inheritance. That would have been really cool. Um, But notice the verse here again. It says about this inheritance that it's imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Now, a lot of you are probably too young for this, but some of the older folks might be able to answer this. Uh, Has anybody ever received an inheritance yet? Like a literal inheritance? Somebody died, and like they got an inheritance. You've received one. Um, You've received some inheritance. Uh, My question, I guess, for all of you would be, has that perished yet? Like, is is it gone? Like, a lot of people get an inheritance from their father or their mother or their rich uncle or whatever, and it, like, it's super exciting for the world, and it's like, oh, where'd that go? Like, the inheritance is gone. Uh, my dad recently sat down with me, and he started telling me about, like, how he's going to die one of these days, and I need to tell you about money, and I was like, dad, I don't want to talk about this. And he's like, I know, I know. And we were sitting in his, in his house in San Diego, in the carport, and uh, he pointed, like, around, and he's like, you know, all this stuff is going to be yours, and I was thinking, oh, no, like, that's not what I want at all. <laughs> It's just a mess, and I don't really want to deal with it. Um, But as cool as an inheritance from my father might be, um, isn't it a great thought that because we have this new father, we have an inheritance that will never fade away, will never go away? That's the first benefit. That's just number one. Look at the second thing about being born again in verse 5 who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So if we have a new father, we have a new inheritance in verse 4, but in verse 5 now we have what? What does it say? We are protected by the power of God. You know, if you have a father, and go back to the ancient world again, and all of a sudden, this father adopts you into his family, and one of the great benefits is you have his protection. He's going to look out for you and watch out for you. Um, we have the protection of God. He's powerful. Now, there's a lot of confusion about that. What does it mean that God protects you? You know? And I believe, by the way, do you believe that God's powerful? I do. And, and it's a little bit hard sometimes to think about, well, how does God protect me with that power? Because a lot of people think, and some preachers teach, that means nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. 
you know, you're not going to get sick anymore, you're never going to have any trouble, like life's going to be amazing. And if something bad does happen to you, well, it might not be God's, because he's not that people. Well, that's not what this means, and I'll show you that in just a minute. But look at the language again. We are protected by the power of God through what? The God is in the business of protecting us, but he protects us through faith. Let me see if I can illustrate that. I have two boys who are now pretty much grown. They're 16 and 14. They don't need my, like, supervision all the time. Uh, one of them's driving, the other one's driving his bike everywhere. Like, and I'm not there all the time. Uh, but as they were growing up, I wanted to take protecting them very seriously. So would you believe me if I told them I locked him in a closet and I never let him out? Like, I never let my kids get around anybody, so nothing could ever hurt them. Would you believe me if I told you that? Um, I've seen parents do that, by the way. So, okay, <laughs> um, but there are different philosophies about protecting your kids. God's philosophy never was he was going to put us in a bubble and not let the world get around us or get kids. Um, but the same way that God, that I tried to teach my kids to be protected by my power through their faith in me. It looks like this. Uh, when Cade, my 16-year-old, was just a toddler, one day he was running down the driveway toward the street. And I was up on the porch watching him run down there, and I could see the car coming down the road. And I wanted to protect him, you know, because he couldn't see the danger ahead. And so as he reached the end of the driveway, I yelled, Stop! Like that. And that little boy stopped. And the car went back. And he looked back over his shoulder. Now let me ask you, did I protect him? I didn't. The only reason that it worked is because he trusted my voice. When he heard me say stop, I, he stopped because he knew that I cared for him. And he obeyed me. And whenever somebody trusts and obeys, they are always protected. And actually the book of First Peter is going to say a lot about that. If God's your father and you love and obey, you obedient to him as dear children. Um, because every time God gives an instruction of a don't do this, or do this. It was always meant for our protection, but I've got to trust it. So, what do we have? If we've been born again, we have a new inheritance. We have this powerful protection. Now let's read verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, if I could choose a word or a concept to describe these verses, it would be discipline. If we have a new father, we have a new inheritance, we have his protection, but now look at verses 6 through 9 again. It sounds a little bit like discipline. The, the willingness of a father to let their children go through some things that are difficult 
so that they can get better. Like a, like a goldsmith or a silversmith would put metal through a fire. And even though that's difficult in the moment, the end result of it is better. See that? By the way, um, go back up to verse 5 again. You see where it says, you're protected by the power of God? If you ever hear a preacher try to say that God's powerful protection in your life means you won't suffer like you used to, come back to this text and look at verse uh, 6. Because verse 6 comes right out and says, even though a little, for a little while you're what? Distressed by various trials. God's protection doesn't mean we don't go through trials. And Peter doesn't imply that at all. The protection in verse 5 is not apart from trials. In verse 6, in fact, the idea of it is, it's like he protects us through the trial and makes us better if we trust him. That's the idea. Um, how important is discipline? Um, I don't know if you guys appreciate your parents yet for the discipline they're giving you. Um, some of you are frustrated by it. And maybe rightfully so. Here's the deal. Most parents don't do it right all the time. Um, they aren't as skilled as God at figuring out sort of the balance between letting their kids learn through trial and struggle in their own sort of imposed suffering on the child. Um, but God's really good at it. God's great at it. Uh, I want you to imagine the illustration here. Because he uses gold being put through a fire. Let's say that you and I were out hiking and we found like this sort of rock on the ground and it looked like maybe the rock was gold or had gold in it, like a gold award in it. And we were all excited. We were like, oh, hey guys, I think we found gold. So we take it to a goldsmith and we said, hey, did we find gold? Is this real gold? And the guy says, oh, yeah, it is actually. It's gold. And we're like, you know, jazzed about that. And he's like, but let me have the rock uh, and I'll make it better. And so the first thing he does is he takes a hammer and starts like pounding on the rock. And you're like, stop, what are you doing? And I'm like, you know, he's like, I'm making your gold better. And I'm like, but you're being really mean to the rock. <laughs> and he would say, you don't even understand what you're talking about. Let me do my job. So after he chisels away a little bit, you know, he gets like down to the gold ore. And I'm like, okay, give it back. And he's like, no, we're not done. And he like heats up this fire. It's super hot. And he puts a cauldron on the fire. And he like throws our precious rock into this pot. You know? And we're like, what are you doing? You're like, burning my rock. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I'm making it better. Guys, what Peter says in this chapter is that since we've been born again, not only do we have this inheritance of God's protection, we have the most skilled silversmith, goldsmith, purifier of faith that's ever been. Whatever trial he allows you to go through, he's going to say later in the book, you know, don't be surprised at it. Don't be surprised at the trial. Discipline means that God loves you. Keep your shadow low. Uh, and he's making you better. Time out for just a minute. Do you, do you see how when Peter talks about grace, he doesn't just say something like, hey guys, good news, you've been forgiven. When Peter talks about grace, he's talking about very rich ideas. You're born again, but being born again means a lot of things, not just that you were forgiven, but that you have all of this now. And you have to think deeply about these concepts. <clears throat> there is now a parenthetical 
in the chapter. Um, In verse 10 through about verse 12, Peter kind of pauses in his discussion about being born again, and he says something about our salvation. And I I want you to see this parenthetical, and then we're going to get back to the discussion of, of our new father in verse 13. So let's read 10 through 12, and we can talk about the the, the aside here in the text. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now look again at this parenthetical. What's he talking about? Look at verse 10. The first few words in verse 10 are, as to this salvation, (laughs) underline. Now, when you underline that, put an arrow pointing up above it. Because the first nine verses of 1 Peter are, is one of the greatest explanations of our salvation in all of the Bible. When Peter wanted to tell us what salvation looked like, he would use verses 1 through 9 and say, here's what salvation is. When he gets to verse 10 and he says, as to this salvation that I'm telling you about right now, I want to tell you something else about it. What does he tell us? Two things. The prophets told you about it. They prophesied of it. And look at the end of verse 12. Who else is interested in it? Not just the prophets of old, but the angels in heaven. Why do you think Peter tells us this? I'll give you a couple of thoughts. Number one, a lot of us don't take salvation that seriously. We don't take the gift that God's given us, as special as we should. And what Peter wants us to know is, all of the most godly people that have ever lived, the people in the Old Testament who were God's people and were prophesying of our grace, they wanted to know about it. They were asking questions about it. They were making careful searches and inquiries about what we have in Christ. Some of us never do that. They did The angels wanted to look into it. They're so fascinated by what God's doing with us, being begotten again by Him, that they want to look into our salvation. How much do we care about? A couple of other things to think about. Look at verse um, 10 again. What does it say the prophets prophesied of? They prophesied of the grace. If you ask most people, hey, where can we read about grace? In the Old Testament or the New Testament, what would most people say? New Testament, right? What's this verse say? This verse says, the prophets prophesied of grace. Whose grace? Our grace. You want to understand the grace of God in your life? Read the prophets. They're actually some of the greatest picture painters of our grace in Christ than anybody in the Bible. Sometimes the scenes in the Old Testament prophets about who you are in Christ are even more beautiful than the New Testament scenes of who we are in Christ. Um, I'll I'll make that point a little stronger when we get to the end of this chapter. (laughs) I want to show you one more thing about this that's striking to me. You see in verse 12 where it says, 
It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. See that? I think that verse ought to make us very sad. Uh, imagine Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the all the prophets of the Old Testament. And as God was giving them, them these visions and they're painting these beautiful scenes of the future and the Messiah and the kingdom and what God was going to do in the world and with people, they were so fascinated by it that they came back to God and they said, God, tell us more. We want to know more about Him and, and who He is and where and when it's going to be and, and tell us more about According to this verse, it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves. Or maybe it sounded like this. You know Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Ezekiel. None of this is for you. It's for people in the future that you're talking about, not for you. By the way, you guys should be glad I wasn't one of those prophets. God would be like, oh, well, I'm out. I don't want to keep suffering like I'm suffering. Because every one of those guys died. I mean, every one of those guys was beat up and hated and mistreated to deliver a message for you. They all bled out somewhere to tell you what you have. Have you ever seen a woman prepare like an amazing meal? She worked for weeks, you know, planned it, because she was going to serve all these people in the future that were going to come to her house. And she worked, and she struggled, and she cut her fingers, and she worked for hours, and she made, like, the best meal that they could ever possibly eat. And everybody showed up to eat it, and they got around the table, and somebody said, you know, I don't really like that food. I'd rather have, like, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Yeah. Isn't that disrespectful? Have you ever heard how some people talk about the Old Testament? You ever heard how some people talk about the prophets? It's not what I really like. It's not my taste. I don't really care for it. I want the New Testament stuff, not the Old Testament stuff. And I tell you, I hope God covers their ears. Because they all served us. To tell us about our grace. And they weren't serving themselves. Let's get back to the discussion of our new father. Go back to verse 13 now. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We have a new inheritance. We have powerful protection. We have this discipline. And now what do we have here? We have a call to action. We have an instruction to be obedient children. But notice that he doesn't just say, be obedient children. He says, be obedient children like your father. Now, not every one of you wants to be like your parents. Right now, you think you know more than that, right? Uh, but some of you might even be growing up with parents that you don't have a ton of respect for. They don't serve God, they don't love God, or the face they put in front of other people is not the face you see at home, and you're determined that you're not going to be hypocritical like that. But every once in a while, you'll meet somebody who has a parent that they really want to emulate. I mean, they just think they're amazing, they want to be like them. 
You know what's great about having God as a father? Is we can always feel like that. We have this new standard, this new father figure. Um, you guys ever seen a child who was adopted? Maybe they were adopted like later in their life. Um, I know a couple of kids like this. And they came from, you know, someplace across the ocean, difficult circumstances, maybe living in an orphanage. And they come into the home. And it's awkward for a while. The kid's scared, the kid's timid, the kid's been hurt, they're not sure about their surroundings. It takes a long time sometimes for like a family to convince them they're loved and they belong. Have you ever seen one of those kids who like struggled through that? Finally. One day, look at their father or their mother and say, I want to be like you. Like, I finally understand. And I want to be like you. Isn't it great that we have a God like that? That's what Peter tells us about our new birth. Now let's go to verse 17. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's word, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold for your feudal way of life, inherited from your fathers, forefathers. But with precious blood, as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So that your faith and hope are in God. Now what did we just read here? It's still about God being our Father. You see that in verse 17? But now what Peter tells us is, we now have a Father who's not partial. By the way, this is good news and bad news for some. Um, I don't want to ask for a show of hands, because I know what would happen. But how many of you believe that your parents are sometimes partial? They love your brother, that that one's their favorite, and I'm the one that's always good. Nobody thinks that, right? Everybody thinks that. And by the way, human beings have always struggled with that. How many Old Testament stories are there? Where human beings had a child that they liked more than the other, or identified more than the other, and there was always sort of this struggle about partiality. Now, if you were the one that the father was partial to, good news. <laughs> but if you were the one that the father was impartial, uh, or I mean, the one that your father was against, then you were in trouble. Here's the deal with God. You finally have a father who is not partial. But that means you need to respect him. Because he's not going to just brush everything under the rug for you. He's going to treat you like it is everybody. On the other hand, though, you know exactly what you get. He's always going to be the same. What's the other thing that we just read, though? Look again at verse um, 18. Peter brings up the price God paid for you. Now, many of you, uh, obviously, are probably not adopted. Let's imagine just for a minute you were adopted. And someday you grew up and your parents told you what they went through to get you. What would impress you? You know, What if a parent said, 
Yeah, you know, somebody dropped you on my doorstep, and I didn't really know what else to do, so I just took you out. Versus the parent who said, we knew you were across the ocean, and we spent thousands of dollars to get you. And after paperwork and legal fees, and a hundred thousand dollars, we got you. Another question. What if they said two million dollars? Notice the verse. It says, you weren't redeemed with anything like that. You were redeemed with the blood of the Son of God. So be more like this. You grew up and you found out that I had adopted you, but I had had a son. And instead of giving my son the chance to have the life that he was going to have, you were given the chance. And you know, if you knew that, like, if we made it like this scenario, like you were in jail, you know, and uh, I took you out of jail, my kid went to jail, and I took all the money I was going to spend for him to go to college and I sent you to college. When you saw me, you know, from time to time, and I said, hey, how's, how's it going? Like, how are you doing in school? If you knew what it cost me, not the money, would you be able to look me in the eye if you were doing the best you could? This is what Peter reminds us of. You've been born again at a high cost, and it was the cost of the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, that's a few things about what we have with the Heavenly Father, but let's get to the end here, verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born, again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. Look at verse 22. This, this is a little bit different than the other things that we've read. Because after saying, you've got an inheritance, you've got his protection, you've got his discipline, you've got his example, you've got his impartiality, you've got all of that. Now what do you read in verse 22? If you have a new father, you have a new family. You have a new family. Let me ask you, is that a grace in your life? Is that grace? Peter says it's grace. But every once in a while people think, like, no, that's the curse of being adopted by God. Like, yeah, I wish God would have adopted me and I didn't have to deal with any of you morons because all my brothers and sisters are going to be Right? Now let's be fair about this. Living with Christians isn't always easy. It's some hard things to I wish this verse read differently. I wish what it said was um, love one another. I wish it said that. But it doesn't say that. It says fervently love one another. Um, I wish that's all that it said. But it actually said sincerely love one another fervently. I wish that's all that it said. But it actually said, sincerely love one another fervently from the what? When did you stop doing that? Where did you ever start? Because according to that verse, when you obeyed the truth and when you became a Christian, not only were you dedicating yourself to serving God, you were dedicating yourself to loving your family like that. And you guys know a lot of people who are older than you that gave up on this verse a long time ago. 
They fervently love a few people sincerely from their hearts without their name. You need to guard against that starting today. Find a way to love the people that you are with uh, because of what God's done for you. Now, let's finish the lesson. Uh, I apologize for taking more time. I'll take less time than the others to make it up to you tomorrow. Um, let's, let's look at why Peter's telling us all this. So look again at verse 23. Notice his, his reasoning here. You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. Now what does he mean here? Um, some of you know Roger Polanco. How many of you know Roger Polanco? <clears throat> and he speaks Spanish and preaches in Spanish, from what I understand. Is that right? Um, I was told by some of the guys that live up there that one time he asked all the English-speaking guys, He's like, what do you guys do with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23? And all the English-speaking guys were like, what do you mean? And he goes, it's really awkward. And he goes, what do you mean it's awkward? And he said, well, in Spanish, the word here for seed is the male human seed. Uh, like if, Eng- if we were to say it in English, it would be like sperm or something like that. And it was awkward for him. You know, when we read this verse, we don't read that. But did you know that's exactly what Peter's saying? Listen to what he's saying. If all you have is an earthly father, the seed that gave you life is perishable. You, every one of you that has an earthly father, is going to die. The difference between an earthly father and a heavenly father is his seed's imperishable. It'll never go away. Now, where did Peter get that idea? That that's what God was saying and that's what God was going to do. Now, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40. You see that? Isaiah 40. Now, I don't want to step on Gary's lesson too much. But the first part of Isaiah chapter 40 is a description of John the Baptist and Jesus. And after John, Isaiah prophesied that John would come and clear the way to the Lord in the wilderness, then Isaiah said that the, all flesh would see the Messiah together. The people would see him. Here's what's weird about that vision in Isaiah. After the description of the coming of the Lord, the coming of God, there's a, there's a voice that says in the text, Call out! Preach! And Isaiah says, What shall I preach? This was what he was told to preach. All flesh is grass, and all uh, and all um, all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. <clears throat> the first thing that's preached in Isaiah is not good news. In fact, doesn't that sound terrible? God says, "Preach Isaiah," and Isaiah says, "You're all going to die. You're all going to die like grass and flowers, like the trees can burn up." Wow, that's not very helpful. <laughs> Why was it good news? One phrase. But the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord endures forever. You know what Isaiah was predicting? Isaiah was predicting that one day when the Lord came, the seed of God would come. And if the seed of God would implant in your heart and you became your Lord, you'd be born again. And even though you're flesh and blood and you're going to vaporize one day, if God is your God, 
and you've been born again by the Word of God, you will never fade away. It's one of the most beautiful gospel pictures there is. But it's not something we see all um, <coughs> We'll pick up here um, tomorrow. But I want to leave you with this last thought. If God is your God, and you really understand the idea of being born again, um, you're not understanding a New Testament idea. Um, you guys remember another time where Jesus had a conversation about being born again? Who was it with? Nicodemus. John chapter 3. Remember that? Nicodemus was a teacher of the law, right? He knew the prophets, he knew the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And he goes, what? How can a man climb back in his mother's womb and be born again? Like he's all confused. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? Listen to his words. Are you a teacher of the law and you do not know these things? Do you know why Nicodemus shouldn't know these things? Because they weren't New Testament ideas. They were Old Testament ideas. They were the pictures the prophets had painted. Isaiah had said in chapter 40, you're all going to die unless you get the word of God. You're all going to die unless the Lord comes. You'll be born again if He comes. And over and over and over again, the prophets described for us the grace of God. And Nicodemus didn't see it. And sometimes we don't. And books like First Peter help us understand it. Thanks for your attention. I appreciate it. Why don't we stand up and